0: Now let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you should find this on page 1186. 1186. I think the title given for the sermon this evening was uh, Typical Church, and that's just my warped sense of humor, uh, partly because of something that uh, Paul says in this passage uh, where he says that the Thessalonian church became an example to other churches. Um, And he uses the word tupos, from which we get the English word type or typewriter and the theological idea that Paul uses in Romans chapter 5 that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. In other words, when uh, you look at Christ and Adam, you, you see certain similarities, certain patterns that are repeated in both lives as Paul makes clear in Romans five twelve to 21. And uh, what I want us to think about uh, this evening is that the Thessalonian church, the Thessalonian Christians were typical Christians in the sense that Paul tells us things about these Thessalonians that should be true of every church, uh, but about them becoming Christians that is true of everyone who becomes a Christian, and these are the things I want us to be looking at. Uh, We'll glance at one or two verses in the chapter, but it's particularly verse 1 that I want us to focus on, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ grace to you, and peace. I know this looks like, sounds like, and might actually be like the first message in a series, uh, but I, I wouldn't bet on it. And I simply want to, as I say, focus on this notion that here in what may well have been the very first letter that we have from the Apostle Paul, he describes these Thessalonians as Typical Christians. What does it mean to be typical Christians? What does it mean for us to be typical Christians? What are the what are the sine qua non, the things without which one cannot be a Christian? And let me begin by uh, telling you of a recent experience, uh, ten days ago or so in a question and answer session. Question and answer sessions at conferences, 80% of the questions you've heard before. Uh, The other 10% of the questions you can guess, and occasionally a question comes up that at this great age no one has ever asked before. And one of the questions that was asked at a conference I was part of was this. How do young people in the church get to know older people? How do young people in the church get to know older people? Postcards will be given out at the end of the service, and the first correct answer will get a prize. I wonder what you think of the answer I gave. It was this. Sit down beside them. Look around, how many younger people are actually sitting beside older people to whom they are not related, and then ask them this question, so, how did you get here? What's your story? And I gave that answer because we have an insatiable interest in ourselves, don't we? And if a young person asks us the question, so how did you get here? What's your story? Well, first of all, we're absolutely astonished, then we're delighted, and then we offload onto them stories that that may actually boggle their minds. Because when you're a young person, you have very little idea what lies behind the face of the older person beside whom you are sitting. And from this vantage point, you do understand that if you can see the pulpit, the person in the pulpit can see you. From this vantage point, I could spend the rest of the time telling you some of the interesting stories that lie behind some of the faces that you're sitting beside. I think it's a a good thing to do. It's a good thing to do no matter what age you are, but it's an especially good thing to do. if. You're younger. And that's the question I want to ask about the Thessalonians. So how did they get here? And if you pause on that word here, you'll actually notice that the Apostle Paul suggests as he actually suggests in most of his letters that these Thessalonians lived in two places at once, and that's one of the essential ingredients of understanding what it means to be a Christian. You live in two places at once. He addresses them as people who are living in Thessalonica, but he also addresses them, you'll notice, in verse 1. As people who are living in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does this kind of thing very frequently. He writes, for example, to the Ephesian church, to the saints who are in Ephesus, but who are also in Christ Jesus. And so immediately we read this first verse if we're asking the question, how did you get here? that there are there are two different answers to the question. They got to the city in which they lived either perhaps by moving there or in most instances probably because they were born there. And As you know, it was a very significant city. It was the most significant city in those days in Macedonia. In the last hundred years, maybe about 80 years before Paul had visited them, Uh, they had uh, gained a kind of independence. They were a self-governing city. They had five or sometimes six people who ruled them, and they were a prosperous city. Uh, They were on what was known as the Via Ignatia, the, the great Ignatian Way which was one of the most important road systems in the Roman Empire. It was a trade route from the east to the west and the west to the east. They had a thriving seaport, and it was a multicultural city. Like most of these great cities in the Roman Empire, it was full of many different religions. And as we know from the story in the Acts of the Apostles, unlike the city of Philippi, which Paul had recently visited, there were enough Jews in Thessalonica to constitute a Jewish synagogue. And the other thing that we know about these great Roman cities was this, that in a very subtle way, religion, politics, culture, and civic life were all entwined together as one. And this, as we are told in the Acts of the Apostles, was one of the reasons the Apostle Paul and Timothy and uh, Silvanus or Silas, as we usually know him, were eventually thrown out of the city because they went to preach the gospel. It was said of them that the people who had turned the world upside down had come here. The Jewish people to whom they preached, or certainly many of them, complained to the authorities about their teaching. They insisted that the gospel of Jesus Christ, with its exclusive claims about Christ as Lord, stood in direct conflict with the lordship of Caesar. And as a result, although they certainly bore some fruit, Uh, Paul's visit to the city and to the area was very short-lived indeed. One of his shortest stays in any of the places where he planted a Christian church. And he was forced out of the city. Uh, You remember he eventually goes to Athens. He goes onwards, eventually arrives in Corinth, and from Corinth he is writing this letter to the church that he had helped to found. And this is where they were geographically. They were in this uh, multi-religious city. They were in a city where they had already experienced religious persecution. They were in a city where believing in the lordship, the exclusive lordship of Jesus Christ was bound to bring them into conflict with the civic authorities. And as Bob Aykroyd was uh, saying this morning, visiting these churches in the first century, whether it's in Crete or in Thessalonica, uh, is like visiting twenty-first century Scotland under a different guise with a different language, yes, with a somewhat different governmental structure but a place where if the gospel is established, so much that is now being established in our culture will in fact be turned upside down, or as the Scriptures would lead us to believe actually turned the right way up. So this is where they are as Christians geographically. But Paul describes where they are spiritually in a very significant way, in fact, in a unique way. He does it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 1. He does it again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 1, but he uses this greeting in no other letter, and I think there's a very significant reason for it. He describes them as being in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They are in Thessalonica, but they are also indeed more fundamentally now, they are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that that's the world they inhabit. They belong to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. They are people with dual nationalities. By birth they are Thessalonians. By rebirth their citizenship is in heaven. It's the very same idea Paul uses at the end of Philippians chapter 3, isn't it? He says to the Philippians who lived in a Roman colony, your real citizenship is in heaven. That's the world that you really breathe. That's the culture that really influences your life. And it's for this reason that you are bound to be different from all of the people round about you. In a sense, it's not something, these differences are, are not something that you superficially develop. These differences emerge from the fact that you now have a different citizenship altogether. Actually, the expression he uses, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, reminds me a little of Jesus' prayer in John 17. In John 17, Jesus begins to describe his disciples in in a very special way. He does it on more than one occasion. He's praying for them as those the Father has chosen and given to Him. Christians are those the Father has loved and given to His Son. And so, what Paul is emphasizing here, in a sense, to these Thessalonians is not only that they they have a new citizenship, but they they have a new security. Remember how Jesus puts it? In John chapter 10, he says, now I hold you in my hand, but it's not only I who hold you in my hand, but you're also in my Father's hand, and I and my Father are one. And this is what he wants to teach these Thessalonians because they're young Christians, they're fragile Christians. Whoever was leading them, and he, he really makes very little mention of any kind of leadership in this church. It, it, one of his concerns is, in a sense, they're, they're pastorless, they're elderless. They, they may even be deaconless. But he's saying the great thing about this transaction that has taken place in their lives is that although they're living in an environment that may be hostile to their Christian faith, they are as secure as if they were already in heaven because they are citizens of another world and they are in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's within that context that he wishes them What is really the fulfillment of the Aaronic benediction, isn't it, in in Numbers chapter 6? He wishes them the grace of God and the peace of God. So that's where they are. They are Thessalonians in Thessalonica, but they are also more fundamentally in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ and you could summarize everything that Paul has to say to them in this letter in these simple terms. The Christian life is living out the life of your new citizenship in the old country. And that means uh, some of us here have lived in other countries or belong to other countries. What do we find? People often say, certainly to me, because I've lived in the United States half my life, so, so what's the difference between living in the United States and living in Scotland? And the truest answer is almost everything is different. It may be just a little bit different, but almost everything is different. And it's the same for the Christian believer. The Christian believer in this world, as Paul says, to is part of a new creation altogether. He or she marches to an entirely different drummer, develops an entirely different set of values, is focused in faith and love on an entirely different person, has an entirely different destiny so inevitably everything is just a little bit different. But let me get back to the original question, so so how did they get there? Or for that matter, if we are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, if we are Christian believers, so how did we get there? In what sense is the experience of the Thessalonians typical? Well, I think it's typical in four ways. The first is this. These Thessalonians became Christians, first of all, because of divine direction. There's just a little clue to that in the first four words, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Actually, in those those four words, in these three names, there is an entire story about how the gospel came to this city. It begins, actually, with one of the great crises in the New Testament church. Um, When Paul had finished his first missionary journey in which John Mark had quit the apostolic band and was about to begin his second missionary journey, there was a very sharp disagreement, a paroxysm is the word, there was a sharp disagreement between Paul and the man in the early church who had been most helped to him, Barnabas. Paul did not want to take John Mark on his second journey. Barnabas apparently was desperate that John Mark would come with them. And there was a disagreement, such a disagreement that they, they went their separate ways. And intriguingly, it was, it was partly, not entirely, but partly as a result of that paroxysm, that disagreement between Barnabas and Paul that uh, these three men eventually ended up in Thessalonica. How did it happen? It happened because uh, Paul did something eminently sensible. Because he'd now lost John Mark, a young man. He'd now lost Barnabas, an older man, mature, very experienced. So, so what did he do? Well, he replaced the older man with an older man, Silas, who was one of the most distinguished leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And then he replaced John Mark, a younger man, with another younger man, Timothy. Clearly, this was a pattern in Paul's mind. I need a senior colleague, but we also need to be training others. And so they set out, as we're told in the Acts of the Apostles, and they make their way at the beginning of a second missionary journey, and uh, they start visiting the churches that they have been in before, and, and then you remember in Acts 16, they they go through this very, very, frustrating experience. Uh, they, they want to go in one direction, and uh, the door is closed. They want to go in another direction, and the, the Holy Spirit prevents them. And then Paul has this uh, famous vision in the middle of the night of a man from Macedonia. And the man from Macedonia, and the vision is saying, come over and help us. Um, It's very interesting, actually, what Luke says. Luke doesn't say, so Paul poured out the conflicts in the morning. He said, I've had a vision. We're going to Macedonia. No, what the the text actually says is Paul thought this through. Paul thought this through. And he he put together in his thinking these, these strange providences of God, that he'd been prevented, that they'd been stopped that they didn't know what to do, that in this exercise of spirit he had had this, this extraordinary vision in the middle of the night, and he, he concluded. That is to say, he thought these providences through, and he concluded from these providences of God in his life that God wanted them to go to Macedonia, and so they, they go to Philippi, and eventually they're chased out of Philippi. And then eventually they come to the city of Thessalonica, and there he's able in the synagogue to preach the gospel. There's there's an elementary lesson for us here, and it's this, that God gives us things in our lives frequently. By means that we never wanted, God gives us things in our lives frequently by means that we would never have chosen it, it 's just how he it 's just how he works, friends. why does he do that? Well, he does it for a very simple reason, so that we we 're not in the situation of saying. I've got the smarts to work this out. I planned this. This this, this is the fruit of my strategy. This is because of the methods I have used. And, uh, you know, in Christian service, in our Christian lives, we need to learn to have that perspective on things that frustrate us that the things that frustrate us are not frustrations to God, that He really is capable of working everything together for good. And this is the story, this is the first dimension of how the gospel came to these Thessalonians and how these Thessalonians became Christians. They became Christians because of this divine direction because of what God had been planning in the past, what he had been working in, in uh, the days that surrounded Paul's life in, 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 in what must have been one of the great pains of his ministry, that he and his most trusted colleague could not see eye to eye. The people around must have thought, this is a disaster. And all the while, God was giving direction to His plans that would eventually lead Paul and Barnabas's substitute, Silas, and John Mark's substitute, Timothy, to preach the gospel to the Thessalonians and for these Thessalonians to become Christians. Just by the by, it is, it is a great thing that I suspect we do too infrequently, or if this is just a personal confession, I do too infrequently. And that is to trace the marvelous providences of God that brought us to faith in Jesus Christ, and even to inquire after them, and to ponder them, and therefore to praise God for them. Now, secondly, and I'll deal with this much more briefly, there was not only a a divine direction that brought the gospel to them, there was a divine election that brought them to the gospel. And you see this quite plainly in verse 4. He says, we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. It's as simple as that. Notice this is not the whole story. This is one element in the whole story, but there is no whole story without this element. Nobody ever becomes a Christian apart from the election of God. Nobody ever becomes a Christian unless God has chosen them. People say to me, I don't believe in election, which actually means so you don't believe in the Bible. Uh, which means that you, you deny what Jesus taught, which means you, you deny what Paul taught, and it raises the question, how did a dead rebellious sinner like you ever become a Christian? And if you, if you deny this, then your logical answer is really this, actually, it's because I'm pretty special. And I know I, I know I sing these hymns, foul and full of sin I am. What I really mean is, mostly full of sin I am. But there's this little bit of me that's different from the great unwashed. And with that little bit, I, I did something to bring myself salvation. You've heard it put like this, God does however many percent of it, but He doesn't do the whole thing, so I I top up what God does. Now, if, if that were true, you would still be dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead people can't do that kind of thing. And actually, when you think of it, it's, it's, it's one of the great tragedies of the Christian church that this this language of God choosing us seems to upset us so much. Why should should that upset us? It it doesn't upset anyone who is a Christian in the New Testament. Actually, what happens with Christians in the New Testament is they love it, they rejoice in it, because they know that unless God had first chosen them, they would never have chosen Him unless God had worked mightily upon them, they would have been incapable of coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that's all I'm going to say about election, but you see now there are, there are two strands operating. And they're, they're part of God's gracious scheme to bring us salvation. He's working in history. But he's working in history in order to work out his eternal love for us. And that's what Paul is saying here, isn't it? We know, brothers, loved by God that he has chosen you. And that brings us to the third dimension of what he says here. There's divine direction. There's sovereign election. And then notice thirdly, there's this third strand There is gospel proclamation. There is gospel proclamation. You know, sometimes people say, if I believed in election, I would stop preaching the gospel. Apparently, that didn't happen to the Apostle Paul. The very very reason he preached the gospel to the Thessalonians was because he believed in God's sovereign love. He believed that God pursues us before we pursue Him. He believed that all these strange experiences that he had gone through were part of the way in which God was working out this electing love to bring these Thessalonians to faith in Himself. And then came this third dimension, divine direction, sovereign election, and then gospel proclamation because God uses means to accomplish His purposes. It's it's not rocket science. He sets His love upon us. He manages providence in order to, as it were, surround us with His sovereign purposes, and then by various means He brings the message of the gospel to us. And Paul speaks about this. We know, brothers, loved by God that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you. You see the pattern? There are the sovereign providences, there is the sovereign election, and now there is the sovereign coming of the gospel in order that God's love that has been set upon them from eternity may, as it were, meet them in history. And he speaks about how they came and preached the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, If you turn back to Acts chapter 17 where uh, Paul is preaching, you see what gospel he preached. Uh, he, He took his his Hebrew Bible, his Old Testament, maybe it was his Greek version of the Old Testament. And he, he showed in the synagogue how the whole of the Old Testament, God's long-term plan. He was in the middle of God's short-term plan. That short-term plan that we've just described as as taking place in the division there was between Paul and Barnabas, that was his short-term plan. But his long-term plan went way back to the beginning of the Bible. And he showed them from the beginning of the Bible how God's purpose had always been to send a Savior. And how as that purpose unfolded in the revelation that He gave to the prophets in the Old Testament Scriptures, God was promising that that someone would come who would be the Messiah, Uh, and He would be a great king, but He would be a different kind of king. Uh, He would be a suffering king, a suffering servant. And the way in which he would bring restoration would be suffering for the sins of his people being wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, being chastised to bring us peace, and being beaten that we might be made whole as Isaiah saw as he he peered into the future and What the Apostle Paul was doing was just what Jesus had done with the two on the road to Emmaus when he had shown them in all the Scriptures that the Messiah, in order to be a Savior, must be rejected and suffer and die and rise again. I was thinking about this on on the way to church. What, what, What were you doing 20 years ago? What were you doing 20 years ago? Some of you weren't doing anything 20 years ago. But, you know, you can remember 20 years ago. It's not so long ago. It was 20 years ago from this letter that Jesus had died on the cross, risen again. There were still hundreds of people, hundreds and hundreds of people, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 who had witnessed the risen Lord Jesus. And Paul has come to this city to preach this gospel. What we have been waiting for over all these centuries, this longest-standing promise of God, this most difficult-to-keep promise of God, has now been kept. And I'm here to tell you, you Thessalonians, that there is a Savior. And when he preached, something happened. It wasn't just words. But you notice what he says. Our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You see, they got the, the truth of the gospel, the, the testimony to Jesus Christ. In First Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and on the third day he was raised again, He died for our sins. And when Paul preached that, the Holy Spirit used the message. So that it wasn't just words that were being spoken, but those words did something by the power of the Spirit. They worked in the hearts and minds of these Thessalonians, and not only that, but they saw something in these three men. Were, were they of like three different age groups, so that it would be it would be clear that the gospel applies to the old, the middle aged, and the young. But he says, you you know what kind of men we were when we were with you. He was actually only with them a few weeks. They kicked him out of the synagogue after three weekends. He maybe stayed around a, a little longer, maybe a month or two longer. Then they just kicked him out of the city. But he's able to look back and say, and this is the great thing, isn't it? It wasn't just the words we spoke. It was the way the Spirit of God gripped you through those words and you saw the evidence for the power of the gospel in the lives that we lived when you saw the difference when we were with you. I remember when I was a student, sometimes you would be sent around churches to preach And uh, on occasion, sometimes I've experienced this also at a funeral. I've stood up to say something, and as soon as I've opened my mouth, I thought this, I am entirely on my own here. I'm entirely on my own here. And the difference between preaching in that kind of situation. And preaching in a situation where people are able to see the connection between the message that's preached and the, and the lives of the people who believe this message, well, it makes all the difference in the world. You begin to see the connections. And this is what happened when Paul had visited these Thessalonians. They'd heard the message. The Spirit of God had come, and they'd seen the transformed lives of Paul and Silas and Timothy, and listened to what they said about what Christ had done for them too. And in this marvelous way, they'd come to a living faith in Jesus Christ. So, these are, these are three dimensions, aren't they? They're three dimensions of the one reality. How did you get here, Thessalonian Christian? Oh, first of all, it's a long story. Starts way back at the end of uh, Paul's first missionary journey. Actually, it, it's an older story than that. It, it starts in the heart of God in eternity in the way He set His love upon me and, and chose me to be His and gave me to Jesus Christ just because He loved me, not because of anything in myself. And oh yes, I, I came to believe in Christ. But with the gospel, there's a fourth dimension. And the fourth dimension is this that uh, all of this comes home in personal conversion. And he talks about it here. There's divine direction that's represented in these three names. There's sovereign election, which he emphasizes in verse 4. There's gospel proclamation, which he emphasizes in verse 6. And then there is his description of personal conversion in verse 9. People were talking about what happened among the Thessalonians. That's a great thing, isn't it? That's actually what we want in churches. We want God so to come in His power that that people will actually start talking about it. That's what happened here, isn't it, in in Murray McShane's day. They didn't need to do anything people just started talking about what God was doing. And what was it that God was doing? He was working in this way. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. It's actually, you know, that's a first century description. The Thessalonians were probably like the Athenians surrounded with idols, Um, and we're surrounded by idols too. This is what happens when you become a Christian. Remember how William Cooper puts it, the dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from your throne and worship only thee." And that is a huge element of becoming a Christian. It's the deep, inward, costly element of becoming a Christian, isn't it? That when when God begins to speak to you through His Word, when the Holy Spirit begins to convict you, you, you begin to realize that there are things in this world. That seem to be stuck to you with some kind of noxious superglue, and no matter how hard you try, you can never get rid of them. In your own strength, I think that's why many people, when when they when they realise they're not really Christians, the first thing they insist they will do is live a better life or try harder because we're so sure we can get rid of this ourselves. But, you see, the problem with having an idol, whatever it is, is that that idol is your master and you are its slave, and you can't get rid of it. But what happened to the Thessalonians was that in God's mercy, God, God broke the affection. God dissolved the superglue, and they found themselves freed to turn to God, away from those idols, and not only to serve Him, but to look to the Lord Jesus whom they'd come to trust as their Savior and, as Paul says here, to wait for them from heaven. This is such an interesting letter. This may be the end of our studies in First Thessalonians, but if it is, it is, it's a supremely interesting letter because as you go on in this letter, you discover Paul was really worried about these Christians. He was worried about whether... What seemed to have happened there was real and would last. And as he was pushed on from city to city, actually at, at one point he tells us, he th- "I can't take this anymore," and he sent Timothy back. and he 's writing this letter only after sending Timothy back to see if it was the real deal among the Thessalonians and, and now and now. Timothy has come back, and he's he's said to Paul, hey, that really was the real deal. And this is one of the reasons Paul rehearses the whole story. It's, it's, It's kind of unique, actually, isn't it? I mean, I don't think it's just, oh, this is my first letter. How do I write my first letter ever that's going to be in the Bible for the rest of history? I think it's because he wants to tell the thessalonians he wants to take the thessalonians through the whole story and say you know i was really concerned that this was a true work of god and and now i know it was a true work of god and because it was a true work of god i know that you are absolutely secure because you are in god's hand and in God's hand you are in Christ's hand. I love that line in the hymn, more happy but not more secure, not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. So how did you get here? <laughs> By car I know. How did you get here to be in God and in Christ? Or could it be that you did actually get here by car and you were born in Dundee, but when you hear this story, you know that you're not in God and in Christ. So, how do you get there? Well, He's explaining it, isn't he? Read the story backwards. You hear the gospel. God in his love works in you. And you find that that super glue that has held you to the idols in your life is dissolved. And you begin to realize that he loved you before you ever loved him. And that was the reason he sent this son to die on the cross and rise again to be the Savior to whom you have found yourself strangely but irresistibly drawn. And then perhaps as you think about that, if you come to faith in Jesus Christ, maybe not immediately, but one day, you'll discover the story that lay behind the story that lay behind the story that lies behind your story. And you'll realize how long God has been working towards bringing you to faith. And you'll discover with these Thessalonians that to be a Christian is just the greatest thing. Not only in this world, but also in the world to come. Well, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this little church that you brought into being because you had set your love on people in that great ancient city. We thank you for the story that lies behind them coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And we're we're reminded, Father, of the stories that lie behind our being here tonight, the many stories. If we could tell them all it would take us weeks, months, perhaps years. To trace them all would take us a lifetime. But we thank you that in your mercy you have written a story into history that has led us to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray that as we reflect on the way you have done this in each of our lives, we may be increasingly conscious that our lives are not only in Christ, but they're also secure in you and in your eternal love, and we pray that that will thrill us and that you'll make us here in St. Peter's uh, a typical church like the Thessalonians, and that you will do something fresh among us in these days that will set people a-talking. And draw them with us to trust in your Son, our Savior. And this we pray in his name. Amen.